I'd like to extend a congratulations to Sir Lewis Hamilton on his eighth world driver's title this uh, this past weekend. Wow. I mean, I've only got two. I mean, technically, he didn't actually win because of some oh. utter shenanigans in the Formula One management camp. But that's probably oh. saved. That's probably best saved for a rant down the pub sometime. <laughs> oh, I know it was rough, Alex. I saw your Twitter feed and it was going to be a rough recording day for you. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, I followed Formula One since I was six, seven years old. So a long time. And what went down on Sunday ranks as the most corrupt, fixed thing I've ever seen in sport, I think possibly ever. <sighs> if you're not a Formula One fan, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you are, hopefully you're in solidarity with me and Lewis because it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't cool. Your faith has been shaken, I can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Why do I bother getting emotionally involved in something where they can just change the rules in the last lap? That's the that's the crux of my of my beef. Mm, I hear you. I hear you. See, I get I get really upset when uh when I just watch sports. I generally just I either get like really super sucked in in any kind of sport or I cannot pay attention at all it's one or the two for me and so it's not generally a pleasant experience <laughs> i mean i'm used to disappointment i have been an english football fan my entire life and i am used to not winning major tournaments or going out at some highly tense moment but at least the rules of engagement are followed from end to end however corrupt fifa may or may not be uh but the fia man whew, that was some grade a horse manure on sunday <laughs> this will never be forgotten this will be the day never and i'm i'm sorry i mean you know max verstappen he is a worthy world champion but this is his first and it will forever in my opinion be tarnished so uh, unfortunate for him but it's the way it goes sometimes anyway should we talk about something that is a little less morbid and uh well depends on your point of view i suppose this uh this aws outage this this past week it's a little rough for some and once again i don't know why but this is maybe my favorite part AWS is a big old outage. You go to their status page. Everything's green. It's all good, Alex. Nothing's down. Meanwhile, the services you depend on are just totally not working. Uh, and Amazon just said that the network devices got overloaded. That was their essential <laughs> basic statement on the problem. Like, oh, quite the postmortem there. Okay, network devices got overloaded. All right, why? Why didn't your status page work? That kind of stuff. Well, that's like saying, you know, I've, I've just crashed into a tree. Well, why did you crash into a tree, Alex? Well, because I didn't turn my wheel enough to stay on the road. Yeah. I mean, technically, that's accurate. Why didn't you turn your wheel enough? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they do say they're going to work on trying to get the uh, status page working better, though. But along with this, we've also, I mean, this is a trend we've talked about before. It's like everything goes along. It's working great until there's an outage. And so... A lot of things quit working that are associated with this. Some of the services we use to produce the shows quit working. Uh, and then kind of unrelated to this, I believe, Wise also had an API outage, so you couldn't get access to your Wise devices. And as they expand into door locks and other things like that, motion sensors and whatnot, like that matters a lot. It absolutely does. Yeah. I mean, I I'm not I'm not party to any of the internal Amazon discussions that uh you know is to root cause analysis and that kind of thing but what i do find interesting are the butterfly effect impacts to smart home users 
There's things like right, right. Uh, we've put a, put a few links in the show notes that I I just got from Twitter by typing in smart home AWS outage, and I found people whose Christmas lights weren't working, whose Robovacs weren't working, whose smart plugs had stopped working, all because the cloud in US East One had had stopped working, and I mean you know stuff like my Home Assistant Nebukasa, uh, that stopped working for a few hours because that must have some reliance somewhere on Amazon and. You know, you, you look at the the way in which AWS tell you to architect your systems. You know, they they pioneered the availability zone concept. They pioneered the multi-region concept. The trouble is certain core services like Route 53, for example, their DNS service, are based out of US East 1. So if that site goes down, doesn't matter how highly available your system is, you can still be impacted by outages like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's so many things that you end up using that are either services, applications, or devices that become dependent on something like Amazon, and you don't even know it until it's out. Like, I didn't realize some of the podcasting tools we were using actually were on Amazon and were using that particular data center. I found out, though, (laughs) I found out the hard way. It makes you really stop and think about the homogenization of the internet in general, really. You know, stuff like Cloudflare and Amazon, uh, to some extent Google, uh, although I don't think their compute is terribly well utilized, although I'm probably way off base with that given how big Google itself is. Uh, Azure as well. You know, you know, there's five or six companies that control the lion's share of the internet's traffic. And if one of those companies has a problem, then we all do, which makes me question What's the point in architecting for high availability and spending all these hours spinning our wheels on Kubernetes clusters and all these other complex abstractions on top of these sandcastles, effectively, of cloud architecture, when no matter how much work I put in to keep something available, something completely beyond my control somewhere else down the pipe is going to cause a blockage. Yeah, the other thing that drives me kind of crazy about it is we're really not taking advantage of some of the strengths of TCP IP and the way the internet can be routed around. It it really lends itself to a decentralized internet. And what we've done for convenience and quality of service and whatever is we've centralized. And we're ignoring one of the key original design strengths of the whole network by doing so. And I don't I don't know if the solution is is all of us, you know, we just self-host even harder. I mean that definitely helps isolate us individuals from these outages. But there are circles of the internet that are talking more and more about decentralization and ways they can they can become more available and, and less of a single point of failure. I was just talking with Dave Jones, who is behind podcastindex.org, and they're using IPFS for some of their file storage, trying to prevent any single point of failure for a server outage. Really makes you stop and think. Like the uh, Mars rover or the Mars copter, I think, is uh, vulnerable to this log4j vulnerability. Like, there's just so much. There's so many libraries. There's so much abstraction between us and the hardware these days. It's really impossible for a, a mere mortal to keep track of where all this stuff and where all these dependencies are going to lie. So, you know, I don't know what the answer is with regards to AWS because clearly they are the dominant force in cloud computing. But so far as I'm concerned in my own personal fiefdom of my house, uh, I 
you know, I didn't really notice a huge amount on the day to day, except for the Nebuchadnezzar stuff. When I was at the supermarket, I wanted to just turn the heating down a bit because uh, I thought we were coming straight home and we weren't, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Besides that, I didn't really notice a huge impact. Yeah. Uh, and that's because I use things like WLED and uh, for my smart lights and Valetudo for my RoboVac and Tasmota for all my smart plugs. All of those things are basically disconnected from the internet and i fully own those pieces of hardware now so that no matter what happens to those cloud services i'm good and this isn't to say you know local good cloud bad because sometimes there are benefits to cloud services but uh, more and more i think the layperson is beginning to understand maybe a bit like the privacy argument there's there's just been enough times it's happened now where they're thinking hmm hold on a minute maybe there is something to this metadata collection maybe there is something to this internet of shit type stuff <laughs> maybe there is yeah that's a good point it's like it is maybe each outage is kind of pushing it into a new wave of people that are recognizing the problem. I kind of just have this general philosophy too. It's like for an application to be whole, I prefer as much of it to be on my LAN in part for security and privacy, but also, you know, I, I, I started using the internet in an era of very limited bandwidth. I sometimes still have very limited bandwidth and I don't like just extra chatter going out over my internet connection that doesn't need to. Every packet matters in my opinion. And why, why send spammy little packets that are just maybe like messages back and forth for what I'm typing when I could run all that on my LAN? So that definitely is a mindset of mine that sort of has kind of, I guess, paid off <laughs> over the years. You know, old man doesn't want to use up his modem bandwidth. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, as the as we just modernize and more things go online, there's also just things you have to use that are cloud-based. There's no way around it sometimes. And yeah, it does go out. I, I have yet to have it cause an actual genuine issue. For me, you know, it's an inconvenience mostly. Maybe a show goes out a couple hours later. But in my IT life, I did have lawyers as clients. And there would often be like this extreme time pressure to turn around a contract that has something to do with, you know, some $10 million deal. And we did have a situation where the exchange server went down. And it was like, red alert, all hands on deck, get this thing back up as fast as possible. We've got to get this email out because everybody self-hosted back then. And so you can also sometimes have these outages when you self-host. And, you know, in, in like, I'm sure this has probably happened to everyone who's listening who self-hosted for a while. It's going to fail when you're on vacation or something like that. You know, like my server here at the studio, which had been running fantastic, of course, crashed while I was on my road trip and I was stuck in Tucson and I couldn't get back here for a week to check on what was going on. <laughs> so that stuff happens when you self host too. And you know, it's all on you to fix it. Speaking of, I know I mentioned briefly that log for J vulnerability in the last bit, uh, the Linux server.io team have posted, uh, an info notice. I think this is a new thing they've started doing over info.linuxserver.io about the log for j vulnerability. Essentially, this is a very critical vulnerability in Java, uh, which leads to denial of service and remote code execution in Java apps. Uh, it's in Java version 11, so it's quite a recent version of Java. Um, I think you and Wes did a full breakdown in this week's land, didn't you? Yeah, we got all the details in there and the steps you'd have to go through to actually uh, trigger the exploit. Uh, but spoiler is 
yeah, you could actually even get this thing to remotely connect to remote URLs and pull down a shell script and run it. So it's not good. It's not good at all. And ironically, it was found by Minecraft users who figured out they could uh, take control of the Minecraft server because most developers, and for totally reasonable reasons, are logging the commands their users are entering into the shell so they know what the user was doing. And if you take advantage of that, well, you could probably guess where that leads. So there's a lot of Minecraft servers out there that people have set up for themselves that are self-hosting that have to get updated. And you know what? I say good on Linux Server IO for uh, going through and kind of letting people know what's up. I think that's also pretty nice to see. Just because I use a lot of their containers. The main one that stood out for me was the Unify Controller as being vulnerable. Uh, obviously, that's got some pretty pretty good network level access to your stuff. And so if there's a vulnerability there, you want to be on top of it pretty quick. Um, there is a version released now with a workaround applied as well as an upstream fix. So if you're running Unify from Linux server in a container, go ahead and pull down that update. There's a few others on the web page as well. Yeah, I know some of our listeners use uh, AirSonic, and that's one that's currently vulnerable as well. So watch out for that. Now, I've been in the market to buy guitars in the last couple of weeks. Joe and I have been talking endlessly about guitars lately. And uh, a lot of that has involved me F5ing a lot of websites to try and you know see what's coming up on the used market, all that kind of stuff. And so I thought there's got to be a better way to monitor these web pages. And I came across an app pick called changedetection.io. This ah. thing bills itself as the best and simplest self-hosted open source website change detection monitoring and notification service. Cool. This looks really good. It gives you a little dashboard and shows you when a page was last checked, when it last changed, and then gives you buttons to check the difference, to recheck it. Mm -hmm. This is so neat. It's really nice. And some of the examples they ship out of the box are for things like the COVID UK government page, for example. So, I mean, if you wanted to know when the guidelines change for that, for some reason, uh, you could have this send you a notification with the diff of what changed. So you don't even have to go to the website and look it up. Uh, I have mine pointed at the uh, Gibson demo shop, for example. And, you know, for me, it just lists, uh, it just looks at the guitars that are on there. And every time a new guitar gets added, I get a push notification through AppRise to my phone with the link to the website. So I can just click on the link and go and have a look at that new shiny guitar that I can't afford. New month, new Home Assistant update. They just released their 2021.12 update. And along with that, there was also a three-hour live stream, uh, the Big State of the Stream project. Yeah, it's the end of the year. I think they're going to just do this now all the time. Um, before we get into the details of what they announced, did you see the VR thing that they showed, that, how they do their team meetings now? I did. It felt very uh, like a rudimentary version of Ready Player One or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Paul has filed up on uh, Twitter, and he said, we at Nubukasa, uh are doing all of our meetings in VR now. It feels more like being together compared to just um, a grid of webcam feeds. Especially for our collaborative sessions, it's a big win. We use Horizon Workrooms on the Oculus Quest 2 which is the standalone headset that runs Android. They don't connect to a PC or anything like that. And he says why it's better for them is number one reason is body language compared to webcam. Your hands and fingers are now included on the call, so you can point at things, you can gesture, you got emotions, you can draw on a whiteboard. Spatial audio actually lets you know where people are and makes it more immersive. But here's the other thing I didn't consider. And this made me go, huh, it's faster. VR is faster. 
Because webcams, you're actually doing like an H.264 video stream or something like that, right? Or VP8 or whatever. But in VR, it's audio and then it's just the data for the movements and stuff, the updates for the movements. And they're not actually sending the video feed of it. They're just sending the data feed. And so what you get is you fix this like, oh, no, you go. Oh, I'll go. Oh, can I? Oh, uh, 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 like that's gone now because the latency is so much better. Plus, you can see people are like, you know, gesturing with their hands and whatnot. Actually kind of made me think. Here's when it kind of clicked for me. I thought to myself, this sounds so silly, right? Until then, I thought, well, what if we use this for podcasting? Like, what if you and I were doing this right now? Right? That'd be pretty cool. That would be interesting. I'd, I'd need to invest in some VR gear. And obviously, if I tell the wife, you know, I need to buy VR gear for podcasting, which is an audio medium, and I need some kind of expensive video headset, I think that would go over really well. Yeah. Yeah, because really, you, you're going to want to get like the upgraded strap. And you're going to want the controls. Uh, so you're like 500 bucks on Amazon. And then like to get good headphones that plug into it easily, that's like another 100 bucks. So you're almost to the price point of the of the style that you can plug into a, to the PC and it actually has good graphics. <laughs> almost to a price point of a ticket to come and see you. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, anyways, uh, the other thing that they just kind of slipped in there. Maybe I missed this because I haven't been following this super closely, but you know the Home Assistant Amber, their little hardware device that they oh, yeah. uh, had crowdfunded? Well, I guess now it's called the Home Assistant Yellow. So they're changing the name. It's still based on the Pi Compute Module 4. Still has got that M2 expansion slot and the Zigbee module and Gigabit Ethernet. Uh, and it's still available to order, but uh, yeah, it's going to be a little bit, I think, before it's shipping. And now it's called the Yellow, not the Amber. Well, like anything this year, you know, I think you've just got to accept the fact that you know, for example, the 1080 Ti that I have in my graphics card as in my gaming rig, I'm fine with that. I mean, if I could have bought yeah. a 3080 or whatever at retail for MSRP, I'd have probably done it. But, you yeah. know, I think in, in 2021, we've just got to accept the fact, and, and 22 now, that these shortages are going to continue. I think I was watching a, a Jay's Two Cents video the other night where he was reciting some insider information that he has from his contacts at Intel and NVIDIA, who said that the shortages at the end of 20 were going to continue through 21. And now they're saying the same thing at the end of 21. They're going to continue through the end of 22. So eh, it is what it is. We all just got to end up being a bit more patient, I think. Well, you know, I, there's a lot of negatives to it. In the RV community, it's a massive problem. Parts are super short. And now there's rumors of a DEF, a diesel exhaust fluid shortage, which the diesel pusher rigs need to go down the road. So the, the, like the shortages, I don't want to make light of it. It's really bad. However, one silver lining that I would love to see out of it is people repurposing old PCs. Like I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of thinking like, how can I just sort of spread stuff out a little bit or take advantage of stuff and instead of going with something new, trying to refurbish something old. And I think that's actually a good way for us to be thinking Absolutely. more and more. Yeah. I mean, all of the systems in my house are based around the eighth gen intel cpu socket i've got you know my backup server my desktop my main server uh, and my work desktop they're all you know all four of those systems have uh, uh my blue iris system five <laughs> all five of those systems have eighth gen cpus in them so that if anything of fails in there 
I don't even have to think, oh, what generation of CPU does that specific motherboard have? No, it's 8th gen, it's done. Right. And, you know, if you That's do nice. the comparisons between an 8th and an 11th or an 8th and a 12th, okay, by, you know, four generations, there might be 10 or 15% difference. But is it worth the thousands of dollars to upgrade at this point? No. And I remember, you know, I remember like 10 years ago when I went from a Core 2 Duo to one of those uh, LGA 1366 i7 960s. Oh, that was like, yeah. that was like lightning, that thing. And I think it coincided with getting an SSD for the first time as well. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a sweet upgrade. <laughs> we just don't have leaps like that anymore. I mean, I know NVMe is a lot faster than SATA and SSDs are a lot faster than spinning rust, but I think a lot of the main speed generational bot- bottlenecks between, you know, an 8th and a 12th gen CPU. Okay, there's PCIe Gen 4 is a slight change, but on the daily, I'm never really thinking, God, my computer's too slow these days. I think you're seeing kind of a big leap over in the Apple side right now. And I was just thinking about this this morning, man. I was just thinking I'd really like the Asahi Linux project to just come along a little bit more so that way I could try out the M1 Mac Mini as a home server in the RV. Because the damn thing takes 28 watts at max load, and that's at max load. And it takes a lot less, down to like 6 or 7 watts at low load, which is just, I can't I can't even fathom that. I can't, I've seen the numbers and I still don't believe it. And it makes, for me, like the perfect home server, if they just, if I could just get macOS off there. <laughs> I mean, my, my MacBook <laughs> Pro that I'm using to record this episode right now. Uh, according to iStat, is using 8 watts to drive a 4K monitor, a 1080p monitor, and the laptop internal display, plus all the USB audio processing that it's doing, and 8 watts. So it's nice to see that kind of shift, but yeah, as far as like gear I'm using for my home systems and servers right now, yeah, the older stuff is is plenty, plenty fine. I mean, I'm, running, I'm, I'm still running Home Assistant on the Home Assistant Blue and on a Raspberry Pi, and I did do the new upgrade. I did the, cause on the, on the blue, you know, I'm using their OS. So now I've been upgraded to their new OS and to the new version of home assistant. It's got that brand new configuration panel and it looks a lot better. Ugh. I don't like it. Really? No. I think it's cleaner. You know, it's more organized. It feels, I don't know, more like how it should have been probably all along. Hmm. Maybe, but it's, uh, you know, curmudgeon over here. It's change for change's sake. It feels, you know, to get to my supervisor panel is an extra click now compared to what it used to be. True. Yeah. Uh, I did I did see some grousing online about that. I had to downgrade as well. I had a bunch of my automations stop working, uh, <gasps> particularly around Zigbee stuff. Oh, no. So I actually I went to uh, .12.0, I guess, uh, and then I upgraded to .1. The Zigbee stuff still wasn't working, so I was like, right, I'm going back to .11 then. Uh, so there I will stay for a little while and see what happens. Mm. Crap. I uh, I have not upgraded the RV yet. I've only upgraded the studio. That's how I do it. I do the studio first, and then if the studio passes, I'll do the... It's no big deal with Home Assistant OS and the uh, snapshots that you can take. So yeah. you, you just put them in Google Drive, and then you just download it and restore, and it's as if nothing happened, you know? So- my biggest fear is somehow some update writes something to my Z-Wave controller or something like that, you know? Mm. Don't hurt the Z-Wave network. Just don't. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So there was the new configuration panel. What about what did you think of the button entity stuff? 
I like it. I've been waiting for something like this because uh, my wife likes to sometimes use the physical buttons on like a LED light strip or or a smart plug. She'll sometimes, if she's just there, she'll just use the button. And that's great. But every now and then, Home Assistant does lose state sync. And so it'll show off or on when we've pressed the button physically. And so now I think I'm just going to replace those with this kind of button, which just makes a lot more sense. Just It's just a switch you press. It has a state on or off, but it doesn't move back and forth indicating what its state is. It just says like press. I think that's clean. And I like to see this feature. Users can now be created that are able to log in only from the local network. So, you know, if you want just a purely local user, you can create that. I was also pleased to see for you the new Jellyfin integration. Yeah. How great of timing is this? Great timing. A, yeah. Um, the only problem is currently limited to music only, which is not great. I'm sure they're going to get there, right? But it's a good starting spot. We'll see. I would like to see, of course, video and all of that. Uh, also nice that the Hue integration now supports the version 2 of API for the Hue lights and Hue devices, which means they show up a lot faster. That's good to see. And I have a Pi-hole. I know you don't use Pi-hole, but I have Pi-hole. And that integration has been updated to indicate when Pi-hole needs an update, which is nice, too. Few integration changes. One thing that came up in the presentation from Powerless was some of the work that's been done in the ESP Home project that's been upstream to other projects. Yeah. I actually tried setting up for my Christmas tree. I did a bunch of um, LEDs for my Christmas tree with running WLED connected to an ESP8266. And back in the day, I've done a live stream with you actually uh, a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Where we had to create an Arduino sketch and then upload it and then do all this ESP tool based flashing. Now yeah. you can just do it all in the browser and it picks it up in the browser. Oh man, you've got to try it. It's amazing. <laughs> I love seeing that. Yeah, they give it they give it as due on the live stream now too. Now that they're all part of the same family. That's good to see. And so I did do the home assistant OS seven upgrade. I mean, there's not a lot in this one. Uh the Broadcom and Atheros Ethernet drivers got updated. That's good to see. And this brings the Linux kernel up to Linux five ten eight three. The reason why that kind of matters is Linux 5.10 is an LTS kernel that will be maintained through the end of 2026. Um, and so if they're going to be rolling their own OS, which I've always kind of been hesitant about, but I'm warming up to more and more as time goes on. Uh, when I see things like they're using the LTS kernel, that to me shows that they're making some good long-term thought choices there about like the, how to build something that's going to be potentially run on an IoT device for a while. And that I, I, I made me feel a little better when I saw they're doing that. So I went ahead and did the upgrade first. I do the OS update first. Well, first I do a snapshot. Then I do the OS update, reboot everything. And then when it comes back up, I do the Home Assistant update. And uh, it all went pretty good for me. I, I don't have nearly the depth of automations here at the studio that I have at the RV or likely you have at home, Alex. So I'll probably wait another week or two before I upgrade the RV just to make sure nothing's going on with Zigbee and just to make sure nothing's going on with Z-Wave and just to make sure my automations are okay. I mean, look, I know what's going to happen is if I post in the forum saying I had this issue, someone's going to say, well, you've been ignoring this thing in your log files for the last six months, this deprecation <laughs> notice. And I don't know, <laughs> yeah. I just can't be bothered to deal with it. So I downgraded yeah. for now. Anyway, speaking of which, I think it's time we did some feedback, don't you? Yeah, we wanted to do a bunch for this episode. In fact, we were going to mention it earlier. It's episode 60. It's a feedback special. Indeed. 60 episodes. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of episodes. 
We'd, in fact, if we'd been doing weekly, we'd be 120 by now. Whoa. You see my Oof. maths there? It was, it's, uh, that was quick. Pretty quick. Anyway, Red asks, do you guys have any naming conventions for your home assistant automations? Oh, that's a great question. I should. I, you, if you were to look at my automations right now, I think I've, I think I've tried three different naming schemes, uh, you know, over the couple of years that I've been running home assistant now. It's kind of embarrassing. You are an XKCD comic personified, are you? Yeah. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I try and do something like I try and group them, you know, button dash office lights toggle, button dash toggle music room lamps, whatever it is. Uh, climate dash up and downstairs set to 18 Celsius, that kind of thing at 8 a.m. I try and make the titles as descriptive as possible, starting off with, you know, the type of events first, you know, or integration, I suppose, first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if that doesn't work, I'll do things like notify dash. So I just have like a single word and then a hyphen and then an explanation of what it does. Well, that seems to work okay. Yeah, it's pretty close to what I've I've pretty much landed on. Mine's a little more rudimentary. It's just like if it's <clears throat> if it's a heater and it's being turned on, it's heat on dash name a heater, heat off dash name a heater. But I've pretty much retired all of those now that I'm using the uh, generic thermostat. I used to have a whole bunch that started turn on, turn off this, turn on that. And when you're looking through a whole group of stuff, you kind of want to group things together a little bit. Like you want all the bedroom automations to be together. You want all the kitchen things to be together. Yeah. And so, you know, you've just got to find a logical grouping that works for you and stick with it. That's how I would do it too. Is do it so that way all the same areas look all in the same spot when you're looking at the damn list. All right, Alex. Our next one comes in on how to approach a company about building a home assistant integration based on their API. So this is a tricky one a listener of ours ran into. Um, and they have basically created an, a, a, an integration that they realize may actually get them in trouble. And so they're wanting our opinion on the best way to approach companies. It's a European company. Um, they're big in this space. So. Should they open source the library and just hope for the best? Should they try to contact the company and get permissions? What are your thoughts on how they should approach them? Well, I think it depends on the company. Um, So, I mean, in the question, which is linked to in the show notes, there's an awful lot more detail. But essentially, this one revolves around reverse engineering token generation. So, I mean, if you were to contact this company and say, hey, I have been able to achieve this result, you will end up in one of two situations. One, you'll end up in the Swedish school voting app situation. I don't know if you saw this uh, this in the news a little while ago. A couple of parents um, basically reverse engineered their school district's app to allow parents to talk to teachers and all that kind of thing so that they could access the API that was publicly available and then build another app on top of it that was better. So you, you might end up in a situation that they did where the government, the local government comes after you and starts issuing cease and desist letters and say, hey, stop that. You're hacking us, blah, 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 because they don't understand that the publicly available API data is just that. It's not hacking. It's just it's available. That is how yeah. an API works. Yeah. Or you'll end up in a situation where the company is receptive and you might end up with a job out of it or some kind of situation where they're open to people willing to work with things like responsible disclosure and all that kind of thing so yeah yeah don't go posting it all over reddit and twitter as your first port of call talk to the company first if you're worried it's going to get you in trouble and see what their response is and then you can start going down the responsible disclosure routes and all the rest of it 
Yeah, I think that's all probably pretty good advice. You could also try to, you know, maybe go a little LinkedIn spelunking, see if you can find some people that might be in the right areas of the company for you to reach out to. Uh, if the company has a forum that they run, sometimes some of the employees are active in there and you can kind of get a sense, start getting an idea who you're dealing with. This has got to be a wider problem. You know, even when you're not cracking tokens and whatnot, there's a lot of crap out there that could do with some home assistant integration and they just need somebody to come knock on their door. Like it, it is a crime against humanity that the Victron uh, folks that like do my inverter and my charge controller and manage all the power in my RV. It's a damn crime against humanity that they don't make a home assistant integration available. Not only does the Victron system support MQTT, but it also supports Modbus over Ethernet and TCP. So there's like two really straightforward ways that they could build an integration to get that data, which would be life-changing, life-changing. And I've talked to people who've built all their own solutions for this stuff, but it's just a great example of like, you can find people out there that are reverse engineering it right now for these Victron systems. But really what it needs is the company to either document this stuff or come out and do it or, or enable a community to build something, right? That's what we need. And I don't know how we start changing that culture because when they're looking at how they're going to spend their engineers' time and resources, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to pro and con. It, looks, it just looks like a waste of time when you're doing it on a pro and con list. I wonder how many more sales people like Victron might make if they advertise the home assistant integration. That's perhaps the angle that you have to approach is, is the business angle to get the product owners interested in spending those development tokens on what we want them to do. I think it was Frank. I think Frank on the live stream for Home Assistant said that vans and, and mobile applications are actually a very large use case for home assistant, which blew my mind. I'm like, Hey, that's, that's me. Like, but <laughs> that's actually like something that is a big enough use case. It was brought up on the live stream. And, um, yeah, when you're looking at the energy monitoring capabilities and logging and long-term logging now available in home assistant, uh, yeah, that'd be powerful. Well, James writes in, in defense of Portainer after last week's character assassination that I think we gave it. <laughs> hey guys, I just listened to 59 where y'all talk about Portainer. Whilst I do love SSH and Docker CLI for most of my personal setup, I think Portainer is great at two things at my company. Number one, it provides discoverability for new users. We're slowly dragging our company into the wonderful world of containers, but it is slow getting everybody on board. Having a nice GUI to show all the options for Docker Run and to easily store things like Docker Compose stacks or private registry credentials where anyone can access them is a huge benefit to us. Number two, it also provides some level of access control, even in the free version remotely. While we could just set up OS users for everyone on our big Docker test server, it's much easier for me to just let Portainer handle it and somewhat lock it down, especially when it comes to things like the QA team who don't really care about how things work under the hood. They just want to click a button, update a container, and do their testing. Thanks, and love the show, James. Fair enough. Yeah, after we recorded, and I was chatting about it with Wes, I, it did kind of dawn on me, oh, right. When you got a team of people that might need to poke in on these containers, I start to appreciate a tool like this a little bit more. Like, we have more systems in the cloud on Linode than we probably should without some sort of tool like this, because there's a lot of containers out there that we have running. And, you know, you've got some and Wes and I have some running. I've got some that only I've set up. Wes has some that only he's set up. 
we've got a lot of applications that are running in containers up there. I could see how Portainer would be nice to manage all that. I think we're probably pushing what you could do with the free version, though. I mean, don't forget, I work on a daily basis with OpenShift, and that really is the value-add proposition of OpenShift. I mean, there's a few more to it when you start getting down into the technical weeds. But really, it's presenting a cohesive single pane of glass across different clouds. That's really the value out of OpenShift, the hybrid cloud thing that you hear. That's, that's what it's doing, is it's giving people a standardized interface to access the underlying abstractions, which in this case are containers. You know, and, and James, who writes in, does make a valid point that, you know, you can use GUIs to solve that problem. I would argue that also you could use just simple bash aliases and some good documentation. But, you know, I've worked with some QA teams in the past that really don't care what how it works under the hood. They don't care if it's the perfect technical solution. They just need to close their ticket and move on to the next one. Well, and that's why often, especially internal projects, you'll go to a web page and there's a button and that button, you know, it's just some hack script that's just doing something to like, you know, check something and check something out and put them in the right spot for the QA. Like it can get real hacky, but they don't care. I'll tell you what I would like to see for JB, and this is my own personal wish list that you don't know what I'm thinking yet. So this is a voyage of discovery for you here, Chris. Ooh, uh, You've been talking about this new server in LUP where you want to do tumbleweed or something yeah. crazy with Sousa. I don't know what you're smoking over there. But... <sighs> well, the audience voted. <laughs> I'm, not con- I'm not convinced in the legitimacy of the results, but we're proceeding to maintain faith. Well, I was thinking, why don't we look at something like K3S, which is like a lightweight Kubernetes from the Rancher team, an open source thing that is, you know, based around Kubernetes, which is an industry standard deployment mechanism that we could adopt as a network, you know? Hmm. Hmm. For the on-premise and cloud systems. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work for me, but uh, I'm not afraid of a challenge. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We should talk more about it. We should have like a little powwow with Wes and like, uh, you know, brainstorm. I mean, there's a bunch of problems to solve like DNS and load balancing and, you know, access control and all that kind of stuff. But for me, when we had that hedgehog outage a couple of weeks ago, it just, for me, it was a red flag to say, Hey, Chris doesn't have access to this box. Hmm. Perhaps you should fix that, Alex. Perhaps we should have a more centralized way of managing all the JB core services that we use to do the production of these shows okay so five writes in with a science fiction self-hosted vision this is a bit wacky so bear with me all right get in story mode (laughs) stay a while and listen (laughs) (laughs) okay so i perceive my data as captives on a titan class closed system ship some of the captives are treated quite restrictedly whilst others might be provided with what seems like paradise with ample food and simulated sunlight and fauna and so on As we know, what appears to be too good to be true typically is too good to be true. There's no telling when the captors decide to unleash a vicious creature or deadly virus on the captives. I envision projects like Home Assistant, Jellyfin and Matrix as emergency life pods liberating the captives. It would be suicide to take on the whole armada at once, but we are able to rescue a few captives from each platform. Once our Libre starship is prepared for their arrival, the captives can adjust to the stable LTS systems, and these systems could also be stable container-based systems. Look, I'm not judging. After the freed captives are acclimatized, we can fly off and break free the next victims behind proprietary space jails. 
Keep the Jupiter Broadcasting Beacon illuminated for our wayward souls. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want whatever he was having when he wrote that in. That's great. It is true, though. I kind of, you know, like last episode, I was kind of grousing about hosting Matrix. But I do feel like it's a bit of a hedge. I I totally admit Discord gets more engagement, has a way bigger network effect. It's way simpler for users to get going on. And from an administrator's perspective, it's so much less work. But Matrix is ran on my own infrastructure, you know, and like the I I like that I can have an at Jupiter Broadcasting account on there. It's a like my domain. And so I feel like it's a bit of a hedge from when it seems like eventually Discord's going to turn into like a piece of crap, as all of these social platforms tend to eventually do. And so we keep it going, you know, and I also like the challenge of figuring out how to manage something like a Synapse server, which is a constantly growing and, and changing beast. It's just a it's an interesting infrastructure challenge, too. Charles writes in, he says, I've been listening since episode one. I have an idea for discussion on the show that I'd like to hear you guys chew on. What about self-hosting Git? Is it worth that over using something like GitHub? I see so many people in the community, often open source software users, that are just up on GitHub. When we have solutions like GitLab and Git T, and of course, there's just plain Git. I'm not a developer myself, but I'm trying to move my self-hosted services to Git-based Docker Compose files. Thanks as always. So Charles wants to know... Your thoughts on like running your own GitLab or just using GitHub? Because I know you use GitHub quite a bit for stuff. It doesn't have to be an exclusive relationship with GitHub. So that's the thing, right? I mean, I run a Gitty server at home and I mirror every single Git repo that I have on GitHub using their mirroring functionality built into Gitt to my local instance. So I generally go with GitHub on stuff that I know other people are going to see or want to see or I think they might find useful just simply for that network effect. And then everything else, you know, like my personal wikis and stuff like that, that I don't want Sachet to have access to. Uh, I keep them in my local Gitty instance and they never leave my land. You know, it's just, it. there are different classifications for different types of data, in right. my opinion. And, you know, you just got to figure out which one, which service works best for that particular piece of code or whatever it is. Man, if that doesn't just sum up how I kind of weigh the pros and cons of what I cloud host versus what I self-host right there, actually. Because like you're using Git T for your notes system, right? So that's, you know, for that reason. Yeah, I'm still figuring that out, actually. The Obsidian uh, mixed with Drone CI and uh, an Nginx-based yeah. container running MK Docs. I am still working on that blog post, but I don't know. My, you know, since I've become a parent, my time just evaporates. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, know <laughs> I just can't get the blog posts out like I used to. I am still working on it, and I am still using it, but uh, maybe I'll get it out before the end of the year, but we'll see. Pew, pew, pew. All right, it's our last one. Pew, 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 pew. And we'd love to get your feedback. Uh, we try to get a couple in every episode and every now and then for a special uh, version of the show, like additions, you know, like these 60 milestones. It's great to have your feedback, so we can just go through all of these. So please send us your thoughts, your questions, your ideas, your cool builds, whatever it might be at selfhoster.show slash contact. And DeckBot takes us out with the last one saying, I often hear comments like infrastructure as code, as well as sentiments like your servers are cattle, not pets. Well, as a Linux system enthusiast, I disagree with that premise. My servers are pets. They are special 
in my heart that said, once a decade, when I finally get around to replacing the hardware, I'd like to spend less time potty training them. (laughs) 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 He goes on to say, is there a recommended guidebook or a primer for Ansible or some other such tools that would be good for us hobbyist admins? Thanks for the show. It always gets me to try new things. Kind regards, Deckbot. I mean, there's a huge bunch of content around for Ansible. Uh, Jeff Geerling, friend of the show, uh, he's got an absolutely amazing Ansible 101 series on YouTube. Uh, there's a book I read a while back called Infrastructure as Code by Keith Morris, which I'll link to in the show notes as well. Um, in that book, he lays out an infrastructure framework for defining every part of your infrastructure as text files. Um, and sometimes, as we call it, code. So infrastructure as code, that's what the phrase means. And essentially, you know, my take on infrastructure as code is it's actually helping me be less stupid because I can't tell you how often I set a system up manually, uh, even if it's a very simple task, like installing one or two packages, uh, and then a year or two elapses and I come back to that server and I'm like, what did I do that for? How, why? Hmm? And so for me, it's just a case of saving myself, a future self, a bunch of time. Yeah, I think the other thing I would really like out of it, and one of the reasons why I want to get into this mindset myself, is uh, I, I, you can build on things you figured out before because the, the the code is a documentation of sorts. You document your infrastructure there so you can go back and review what you figured out and you can build on top of that for future deployments, which I like that a lot. But I, I am with you, Deckbot, in that um, my servers, like my home server in the RV and the server here at the studio – they have real special places in my heart. Like I, I have inappropriate feels for both of those rigs, but I get what, what the sentiment actually is going for. When you treat it as cattle, the idea is it's, it's something that if it had to be replaced, if its life cycle was complete, it's easy to replace. It's easy to swap out. The more I think about the analogy, it's kind of gross, but it, I get the idea because if you adopt that I, that mindset, then your data tends to be protected and isolated. Your configurations tend to be off the rig, and you're actually in a much better place should there be some kind of hardware failure or other disaster. Just adopting that mindset and kind of deploying things like that. So even even if you still have like the real inappropriate man feels like I do, <laughs> it's still probably a better way to manage them and keep them. And it's getting to the point now where I'm kind of feeling like what Alex was alluding to earlier is just like wiping a clean slate, redeploying everything and doing the whole thing from the ground up that way. But it just is such a massive project. But of course, if we ever do it, I think we'd probably document the journey here on the show. Yeah. And, you know, we do have an infrastructure repo for the show as it stands at uh, github.com slash self-hosted show slash infra, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Uh, there's a bunch of Terraform in there and Ansible in there that I use to deploy all of the show infrastructure that that uh, I manage for Chris. Um, but you know, even if you're only implementing a few principles within the infrastructure as code kind of ethos, you're still a lot further down the road than a lot of people that don't even know what that phrase means. So, you know, 10% of, of something is 10% more than zero. That's <laughs> true. I like your math today, dude. You're like, you're math whiz. <laughs> Thank uh, you. you know, I feel like I should mention there's a, there is a possibility this is going to get canceled because of the news out there but i feel like i want to mention that if things go okay you know uh corona wise we are going to have a meetup at the studio january 2nd 
And I'm trying out Get Together because Get Together is a meetup alternative that you can self-host. I'm trying out their hosted version right now to see how people like it for this small event. And it's gettogether.community slash JBHQ, or I'll just have a link in the show notes. If you'd like to join us, we're going to have a new server christening party on January 2nd, assuming I can get everything done by then. I actually haven't even got the things powered on yet. I've been so busy. And then there's also the whole Corona thing. So it's all up in the air. But if it happens, that's where you'll find out about it, even though it says it's at 3 a.m. for some weird reason. Also, I'd like to mention that we've now launched, based on popular demand, a network-wide membership. And if you sign up before the end of December, it's coming up quick. I'm taking $2 off a month for a year. So it's less than the price of two membership, two show memberships, and you get access to all the network goodies, every show's special features and goodies and any new shows we add. And it's also the only way to get Linux action news totally ad free. And of course it supports the network. It gives us that flexibility to be picky with the sponsors that we choose. It lets us do extra little things like get togethers every now and then. And of course it gives us runway to make sure that while we are working on developing relationships with sponsors or whoever it might be, show production continues. That's critical. So Jupiter.party, if you'd like to sign up for the whole network membership, there's also a gift option right there. And of course, you can maintain your self-hosted membership if you'd like to just support this show. If this is your favorite thing, this is what you listen to, selfhosted.show slash SRE. You get our special post show and everything like that. Even if you can't support us with a membership, though, we still really appreciate you listening, downloading, and maybe sharing it with a friend. A question we've had a few times, actually, is once I am a member, how do I get access to the member feeds? So um, you can log in at any time to the member area. But right after you sign up, it'll actually redirect you to a feed page, and it will generate a feed for each show. And um, if I add a show down the road, you log into the membership area, and you just go pull that new feed. And then you just got to go pop that in your podcast player. That is... It's a custom dynamic feed created just for each member. And we do we do make it possible to subscribe to just the ones you want to listen to. So maybe you don't want all the shows. I mean, I know what's wrong with you, but maybe you don't. Uh, <laughs> then you can just pick the ones you want in there. Well, very good. Thanks for supporting the show if you're an SRE already. And good work, Chris and uh, and Wes, on that membership. Something's been in the works for a very, very yeah. long time. Yeah. You know what? It was like we had to connect multiple platforms together. Uh, three. And then there was like contract stuff because now all of the shows, which I didn't say earlier, but this is kind of a big deal too. It's not limited ads anymore. It's ad free. Unless like, unless I didn't like manage to get all the ads and I was supposed to, (laughs) which which shouldn't happen. But uh, that's also been a big thing we've been working at the same time. So we could kind of do an upgrade because it's now been a year of memberships. And so we wanted to go from limited ads to no ads. Uh, Because you know know what else I hear from some people, they don't mind the ads. That's fine. Like, you know what? Thank you. Really? Because <laughs> we need people listening to the ads, too. It helps that way as well. So it works out both ways. And it, it I like having that mix because it kind of gives us the flexibility to to be kind of picky. To You know, you, you get these you almost get like these spam level sponsors that just want to blast all podcasts. You hear them all the time. You probably can think of a few of them off the top of your heads. Uh, and that just doesn't serve our audience. Right. So that's why I think the memberships are great. You mean you don't want a new mattress in a box every week? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of those. Uh, We'd love your feedback. Like I said earlier, self-hosted.show slash contact. And uh, 
You can uh, also find there is a self-hosted, um, besides we mentioned the Discord, there is a self-hosted Discord, self-hosted.show slash Discord, but there is also a matrix room on our Jupiter Broadcasting matrix server at colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. Rumor has it as well, we're stopping Twitter plugs for the foreseeable future now that Jack's out. I mean, I've been rolling back. Yeah, I feel like if Jack's out, I mean, do you do you love Twitter? I don't love Twitter. I use it. I like it for replying to people. That's what I like Twitter for, and that's about it, you know? It's nice, you know, I put out a post the other day saying, has anybody got any old hardware they're looking to get rid of or to sell? Because I want to benchmark a whole different bunch of QuickSync CPUs, um, which I'm working on an article for that. And uh, I've actually had a listener send me a fourth-gen CPU. He lives in Charlotte. He sent it over. So I'm going to borrow that for a few weeks and do a benchmark. Was that a connection made by Twitter? Is that where... Yeah, 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 through yeah. Twitter. Gotcha. Um, so if you have an old QuickSync motherboard you're no longer using, let me know via Twitter, at Ironic Badger. And uh, <laughs> I still plugged it. It's just habit, yeah, it's I still guess. Good. I mean, I still like the interactions I have with people on there. I've just been thinking, like, if they were going to follow us, they probably have done it by now. So now I've been it's thinking, true. like, maybe I'll plug the Matrix. We also have a Telegram channel at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. But, you know, I'm on there at Chris Lass. If you tweet at me, I'll tweet you back. And if you want to find all of our show notes, you can go to notes.jupiterbroadcasting.com for a searchable archive of the Jupiter Broadcasting show notes. Uh, and so all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 60. Well, I mean, I told you previously that I'm looking to buy an RV and I'm trying to decide to go class C or whether to go fifth wheel. And I can't, really just i mean there's obvious pros and cons to each different i mean the the, you know the class c is a van basically a big camper van yeah, with a box on the back of it yeah right and the driving cab is part of the living space whereas the fifth wheel you have a truck that tows a caravan a trailer yeah and you know there's there's pros and cons you get to your destination with the fifth wheel you can unhitch and now you've got a you know go into town vehicle and you know, you're sitting in a nice comfy cab in a truck. You've probably got heated seats. You've probably got good air conditioning um, because, you know, that's one thing is when you're driving in hot places, a big cab means it's more space you have to condition where a truck cab is much more manageable. Plus, you get things like CarPlay or, or Android Auto and that kind of stuff, which is really nice. and It's quieter, but. You can't just park somewhere and go back and get yourself a sandwich or go to the pisser, right? Which is That's really it. nice. Yeah. That's the dream. Yeah. And then you also, I, the other thing I like about having it connected is you know what's going on. If you're driving over something that's destroying your kitchen, you can you know let off the gas a little bit. But when you're towing, you're really just kind of oblivious to what's going on back there unless you set up like a camera or something. You need to so set up a camera feed. Okay. There's one major difference though, right? And, right. The, and that is a Class C means it's another motor and tires and all that, but it's another engine you have to maintain, maintenance. Whereas a fifth wheel or a trailer, every time you replace your truck, your fifth wheel just got an upgrade, right? And if if your truck has an issue, you can leave the fifth wheel behind and you can take the truck into the shop. Where if your Class C has a problem, you got to go to an RV mechanic. And that's a whole other, that's a whole other industry. It's nothing like the auto industry. <laughs> and then you have to stay in a hotel and. Yeah. 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 Uh, some RV, so, depending on the issue, uh, some, some RV shops will let you stay on the lot. It's kind of an unofficial thing. They don't make a big deal about it because they're probably not supposed to, but most of them will let you. Uh, but you know, you could 
either way, Alex, you could trick it out with so much cool stuff. Um, it's just a lot more cost because you got to get the fifth wheel and the truck. And it's going to be a, you know, it can't be the F-150 Lightning that's going to, you're not going to pull a fifth wheel with that thing. No. Not for long. <laughs> nope. I was looking at it and, uh, you know, probably, an, what is it, a 350 is what I'd need for a big trailer like that. Yeah. Yeah, you could probably do with the 350. With the Beyonce hips and the Shrek mirrors out the side. Yeah. That's what that's what we call them anyway. The dually. Yeah, you got to have the dually and all of that kind of stuff. And See, I don't think I want that. I think I want something. A big truck. You know, I'm not intending to live in this caravan, in this trailer. I'm intending to road trip in it, but uh, living, no, nah, it's not for me. Yeah. Uh, and so do I want my vehicle to be a dually with massive mirrors? And hmm, I'm, I'm thinking no, but I mean, you know, the, the big downside to me for a class C, like you said, is I need another vehicle, presumably when I get to my destination to do sightseeing. So I either need to tow something or do a convoy. Or get a small class C. Yeah, you know, there are some there are some ones that are not much yeah. bigger than a van, but uh, yeah, towing's not so bad. I think you'd be able to tow pretty easily, and most of those classes have enough horsepower. You know, you get a flat tow if you can. I don't know; it kind of depends on your vehicle. But if you can do flat tow, it's pretty simple. It takes you just a couple of minutes to hook a car up or unhook it. Um, the only downside with those is you can't back up. You can't back the rig up while they're connected. So. That does add a level of stress. I can tell you that. And I have been in gas stations where we had to unhitch. So that way we could clear like the post. And of course it was 120 degrees outside and the cement was hot as hell. And it was like one of the worst (laughs) things I've ever had to do. (laughs) So there are those moments, (laughs) but most of the time it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Most of the time, most of the time it's just fine. Most of the time. 